Hello, welcome to Shoot First, Talk Later, the photo shoot podcast with me, Robert Gershenson. Uh, my guest this week is a former actor. He's uh, also a former member of the European Parliament, a co-founder of Stonewall, a current member of the House of Lords, a CBE, and he's just been awarded um, the Freedom of the City of London. Oh, and he's also the special envoy for LGBT rights. His name is Michael Cashman. If you want to see the photos I took of Michael, head to www.sftl.photos. That's plural. There's an S at the end. Sftl.photos. We've done the shooting. Now let's do the talking. Hello, Michael. You Hi, good? Robert. I'm good. Yeah, I'm very good. Um, so your achievements are kind of through the roof. Do you ever sit back and just think, bloody hell, I got up early. I achieved a lot. You know You know what? I, I, I kind of... I'm waiting for someone to tap me on the back and say, I'm sorry, can we have it all back? We meant the other <laughs> Michael Cashman. Um, it's true that actually in psych- psychology terms, th- there are a lot of people who are in the room waiting for people to say, oh, excuse me, you shouldn't be here. And I think that comes from your upbringing. I think it comes from growing up in the 50s and the 60s when to be gay was to be criminal. Um, so it's, it's about all those things to do with self-worth. To be absolutely honest, I'm not being flippant. Um, but again, I look at the journey that I've, I've gone on, and I'm, I, I'm astounded, absolutely astounded. The journey is kind of what we're going we're gonna to chat about today. So it's 2016, so for you... I mean, you were, you were born in 1915. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't look a day over being born in 1960. Good, thank you very much. <laughs> this interview is going to go well. <laughs> but it must be, again, it must blow your mind that we, we have the things that we have. And by we, I mean the LGBT society, um, or society community. We have the, the things that we have now. It must blow your mind. It, in, you, you grew up, you came of age, say, in the mid-60s to, to, the, to the early 70s. Mm. It's vastly different. It's vastly different, but we must remember that it's still vastly different for some people in the United Kingdom. It's vastly different for people living in Northern Ireland who are lesbian and gay. They don't have marriage equality. It's vastly different if you live in certain parts of Europe and certain parts of Africa and India. Um, And that's what we must never forget when you look back at what we've achieved. We've achieved it. Um, Not in the 30 years since we rebelled against Section 28, but because thousands of generations before, women and men had the courage to say, you can't do that. Mm. You're doing that to my child. You're doing that to me. Um, And, you know, I was very lucky. I knew when I was about seven or eight that I was only interested in other guys and that girls were my friends. They weren't the enemy. Um, And... And my first relationship, real relationship, was when I was 16. And then it was, you know, it was criminal. There was no age of consent. And Lee, who I had the relationship with that lasted for nine years. Nine years. He was eight years older than me. And this idea that somehow older men were predatory, absolutely not. I had to chase him down. I had to (laughs) beat him down. Um, And when we moved in together, um, he said to me, he said, do remember, you and I have got to pretend to be cousins. He said, if people realise we're together, he said, uh, I could go to prison and so could you. And then when the law changed in 1967, when the brilliant Harold Wilson's Labour government 
uh, decriminalised homosexuality and did a whole range of other brilliant things, um, uh, it was still illegal for us because I was uh, age 17 um, and the age of consent was 21. So, but when I stood up at my civil partnership with my amazing um, husband, uh, Paul Cottingham, uh, I, I actually said, I said, I never thought that this would happen in my lifetime. And, and even so, I, I pinch myself now. Uh, we, we've still got to change minds. We've got to change hearts. People are still queer bashed. Mm -hmm. People are still, still transphobia, biphobia. Um, but the journey in a relatively short space of time has been incredible. And that, Robert, is worrying because people will think it's easy uh -huh, I get that, that we're there. And I want them to go on pride marches where you go on that pride march and you're threatened. Like one of the first pride marches I went on in, in um, Bucharest in Romania, where there were a thousand police protecting us, where there were water cannons protecting us, armed police. And you realize... And this is recently? This was, no, this was you know, now probably about eight years ago. Okay. But, but still, still in parts recent. of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, people do not have uh, the rights that we will enjoy uh, to party and be ourselves on the 25th of June at Gay Pride um, and we have to remind ourselves that what you have can so easily go it all hangs in the air human rights never sit in concrete and steel protected they rest there because decent women and men allow them to be there so looking, looking back you said that you, you had to pretend to be cousins with, with Lee. Um, were, you, were you generally out to people? Were you out to your, your family, your friends? Was it, is, is it quite, was it quite a stressful, repressive way to live? Just talk me through how, no, how it, it was back then for you. It, well, it wasn't for me because Eartha Kitt saved my life. Um, at the age of 11, I impersonated Eartha Kitt at my end-of-term school show in the East End... Um, and, uh, and there was a talent scout who made the weird connection between my impersonation of Eartha Kitt and Oliver. <laughs> and within a month and a half, I was playing Oliver in the West End. Um, and, and that changed my life because suddenly a 40-minute bus ride away from Limehouse where I was educated and where, and where I was uh, growing up and, and where living... Where we are now. Where we are now. Um... 40 minutes away, I was in an environment where they judged you by whether you turned up on time, whether you did your job properly. And I remember my dad saying, oh, I don't want him... He was an old docker. He said, oh, I don't want him going in the theatre. It's full of queers. And I thought, <laughs> oh, wonderful. But, so I had this amazing double life. And I learned very quickly, because I knew I was... Then you identified yourself as saying I'm queer. Yeah. You didn't have the luxury of, uh, of a, a, a warm language. Um, and, and so I decided that I would never mislead my parents and my family. So when my eldest brother got married, they said, bring your girlfriend to, um, to the wedding. And I said, I haven't got one, I'll bring a mate. Uh, mm. And they'd say to me, are you going out? I'd say, yeah, who are you going out with? I'd say, mates, where are you going? I'd say, out with mates. Because I knew that once I began a story that they wanted to hear, that there was a danger that I, ha I had to fulfil it. Yeah. But it was, you know, the, you went, you didn't, the idea of going to a club 
absolutely not. You went to a cottage. And then when you went down to that public toilet, you were terrified because you didn't want to, you didn't want to be there. But it was your way of connecting. Was, it, yeah, was that the only connection to you know, the, the gay community that was out there? Well, w- when you were my age, 14, 15, growing up in the East End, yeah, yeah. there was no... So this is sort of the mid-50s. Uh, sorry, 60s. Mid-60s. mid-60s. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember I went on tour with a play uh, and lovely camp actor, Ian, uh, and, and, and we went to a pub in Blackpool where it had a gay bar in the back. Just a gay bar that was the size of Coronation Street uh, snug. Yeah. And, um, and I just thought, my God, this is amazing. And Ian, when we got back, Ian Calvin Taylor, his name was, <laughs> he, said, he said, I'll take you to a club in the West End. And there was down Darbley Street, just in the middle of Soho, there was a club called La Douce. And I, I, I will never forget, we went in down the stairs you didn't pay to go in. You went down the stairs. They checked out that you were old enough. And then I walked into this room where they just served coffee and Coca-Cola. And there were guys of my own age and others dancing together. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And so my other life was in the West End. Um, and I was out at work. I came out really to my parents uh, by stealth, by, by saying, no, I'm not going out with a woman, I'm not going out with a woman. And then finally I came out when I was about 24. Had they, had they already guessed? Yes. Yeah. I mean, my mum said, uh, I, I always knew. My father's reaction as a, 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 an old working class docker was, he said, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. And I was going to fight with him because I had a very difficult relationship with my dad. Mm. And my mum said, leave him alone. And my wonderful aunt Eileen who had the amazing trick of taking all her teeth out, and we never <laughs> quite understood how she did that. Um, she went, she went, I've always known. She said, and it hasn't changed you. So I was very, very lucky because a lot of others had a very different um, uh, experience. But I think, again, that was the luxury of being in show business, as we called it, uh, being surrounded by older gay, gay men who were kind of role models mm. for you. Um, uh, and being in the East End and, that, and it being a dock meant that life was colourful here my mum and dad used to go to the Charlie Browns which specialised in drag queens and my mum used to say every, every time I go to the toilet she said it's full of bleeding drag queens in there <laughs> especially if there was a fight <laughs> um, so I didn't know you when I was doing research for this, I didn't know you were a West End actor as well I had no idea about that um, so you and Oliver, what else were you in? Oliver, uh, I then um, was in a, a television play when I was 13 years old called Gideon's Way and, had a, and uh, did a lot of television. I was also in a, a musical called Passionflower Hotel written, written by John Barry uh, with Pauline Collins was one of the stars. Um, Bill Kenwright, of course, who's mm-hmm. now a big theatre producer. Um, I was in Peter Pan twice in the West End. Uh, as Peter? No, no, as uh, no, because a woman always played Peter. Oh, right. <laughs> as John Napoleon Darling. Okay. Uh, and then as Curly, um, and then I did a variety show, in um, at the old Prince Charles Theatre. So before the age of fifteen, I'd appeared and starred in the West End five times. Wow. And then worked in Rep as well, Birmingham Rep, yeah. Leatherhead Rep, um, and uh, yeah, so. And that's why I always say, really, effectively, my education ended 
when I was 12 years old. So essentially you've learned, I guess, I guess the school of life and the, the school of just going straight into work. Of doing it. Yeah. I'm a great believer in do it. Um, but equally, I, I had an amazing experience when my career was going brilliantly. I start, just starred in an amazing tribute to the writer J.B. Priestley on ITV when I saw two doctors bring a woman back to life. It was, uh, and I think I was 24, and I decided I wanted to be a doctor. So I phoned up uh, the University of London and said, what do you need to be a doctor to get into medical school? And they told me the qualifications. And I went off and I got those qualifications that normally takes four years, the O-levels and the A-levels. I got them in 11 months. Wow. Um, Did you ever sleep? I, I, of course I slept. <laughs> um, but, but, and in science, you know, physics, chemistry, biology. That If you'd said to me when I was at my secondary modern school and then at my stage school that I could have done that, I would have talked to you blue in the face. I would have said, absolutely not. And it's a wonderful reminder. I didn't get into medical school because the grades in physics weren't good enough. I was offered dentistry and I turned it down. I went back to acting. Um, and for me, it's a wonderful reminder that if you ha that, that never judge someone by what they can do at the age of 12, 15, 30, 50. Because if you have suddenly the inspiration to do something, you will use all yeah. of your potential. Oh, I completely agree. Why did you, why did you go back to acting after well, doing all that studying? Well, because uh, the only reason I wanted to stop acting... Uh, was to practice medicine, and I thought if I can't practice medicine, that's why I turned down uh, a course in dentistry, uh, what was then the Westminster School of Dentistry, was because I thought if I can't do what I've left the theatre to do, I'll go back and do theatre. And yeah. I went back and I had to start all over again, playing tiny roles, going to the Royal Shakespeare Company, playing small parts, um, and gradually working my way uh, back up there. And it landed you a, a part in the biggest soap at the time. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, that was really interesting. Uh, but in terms of, of, of the story, I nearly played the, a fir the first MI6 man on television in the 1980s because I starred with Roy Marsden and Ray Lonnan in a series called Two, a series called The Sandbaggers, which was about the Secret Service. Mm. And towards the end of the second series, they wanted to re reveal that my character was gay. But the writer who was going to do it, who conceived the series, um, suddenly disappeared mysteriously, 200 miles off the Russian coast, never to be seen again. They, nothing to do with me or my age. It's quite fitting for a show about spies. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and and so, so I nearly played uh, a groundbreaking character then. But how it happened in EastEnders, um, the show had been going about eight months and I got a call to go in and see Julia Smith, who was the original producer, and Tony Holland. They co-created the show. And I'd worked with them ten years before on Angels, playing the first male nurse okay. on, on television. And, um, and we had a, an amazing fallout. So I used to watch this show along with Paul, and I used to say, great show, but I'll never be in it. Mm. And then I got this call to go in and see her, uh, and Tony, and I'll never forget, I went in and they said, well, we like your acting, you've become a very different kind of actor since we worked with you, um, and um, we want you to play this part, we tried to cast a straight actor, and I said, tell me about the part, and then they told me that it was an ordinary guy who just happened to be gay and had a young lover, young working class lover, 
And, sh and they said the reason we've tried to cast a straight actor is because the experience that the actor will have because of the media. Um, and they outlined two years of stories uh, to me. And I, Which were what? What was the, the storyline going to be? The, the storyline was Colin moves in, Barry, his young lover, then uh, later in their relationship, it's a stormy relationship, um, AIDS and HIV came into the storyline. And we must remember, you know, that the BBC introduced this story at a time when AIDS and HIV was depicted by not only The Sun and the News of the World, but nearly all of them. AIDS and HIV was depicted as the gay plague mm -hmm. and represented that you could pick it up by just being close to a gay man. Uh, so they showed amazing courage and foresight in bringing the character in, and they were so AIDS and HIV was coming to the storyline. But interestingly, uh, so was multiple sclerosis, and Barry was going to get multiple sclerosis, and I was going to nurse him. But they decided later on when. Uh, when Gary Hales, who played Barry, left, that they would have Colin uh, getting it. And a lot of people thought he was actually suffering with being HIV positive and an AIDS-related illness. So again, it kind of dealt with the issue and dealt with the stereotypical way people saw gay men in particular who might be ill. And so then flipped it. And then flipped it. Yeah. Um, so, and then they offered me the part and I said I've got to talk to Paul I've got to talk to my mum and dad and Julia looked at Tony she went I told you he'd be bloody sensible <laughs> she said go on go home bring me in a couple of hours uh, and that was it what did your family say my mum went oh yeah lovely oh marvellous yeah and my dad well it's nothing like the East End is it <laughs> and Paul went yeah great are we still going to Paris at the weekend <laughs> and, but you know what Robert it was it was a, that was kind of what you did, you got on with it. You, you didn't look at the enormity of it. Um, I didn't. I knew the tabloids would go for me, which is why I never gave any of them interviews. I knew they wanted they'd try and bring me down or bring the character down. But I don't think I was prepared for the onslaught and the misrepresentation and the defamation. And when they outed Paul. To his parents. How did they do that? In the centre pages of the News of the World. They printed the picture of Paul? Yep. Secret gay love of AIDS scare EastEnder. Isn't it funny how <laughs> you don't forget <laughs> certain things? They printed our address, all but the number. And that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon, I mean, Paul dealt with his family. Um, came out to them, but came out to his sisters, but came out to his mum and his stepdad a couple of months later. Mm. And his brilliant mother, wonderful Liverpudlian. She said, are you happy, son? It really upsets me. And he said, yes, I am. And she said, you know what? It's the only thing that matters. And then years later, she said to me, Mary, she died sadly quite recently. She said, hey, she said, I always wanted one of my daughters to marry a rich fella. She said, my son's gone and done it. <laughs> it's the worst, worst Liverpudlian accent ever. Um, but that's the way decent people get on with loving their kids. Mm. Um, but we had a brick through the window that afternoon. Um, Jesus. Yeah. And, you know, headlines with my picture saying filth. Uh, another one, East Benders. Um, and that's why I can never forgive the tabloids, I, nor can I forget. Um, because they destroyed people's lives. They didn't destroy destroy mine or Paul's 
because we had one another. But, you know, Kelvin McKenzie once boasted that he was proud of the headline uh, pulpit poofters about priests mm. who were gay. Um, and the damage that they caused and the stereotyping and the discrimination that they pandered to and enhanced must never be forgotten when we come to write the history of the emancipation of LGBT people in this country. Did you ever regret, when, when you were in the, in, in the midst of, of, of the frenzy, did you ever regret taking on the role? No, never. Never? I often, I once said, I regretted that Colleen didn't have a different boyfriend because I went to Julia. I said, Julia, I said, this, uh, this, this relationship doesn't work. I said, Colin wouldn't fancy Barry. She said, Michael, it's because you don't fancy Gary. <laughs> Get on with it. It's called acting. No, I, I only once had trouble with an episode when they wouldn't let me, um, when Julia had left, they wouldn't let me hug Gary in the pub, uh, but Barry in the pub when he came out to his father and his father rejected him. And I said, hang on, you're imputing sex into this hug. This is about holding someone because you, they've just been rejected. Yeah. You love them. Um, and they wouldn't let me film it like that. Why? They, I mean, they'd have no problem with, you know, Arthur hugging Pauline. No, but w we are talking 1988, mm -hmm. 89. You know, when I went into the show, there were questions in Parliament as to why a homosexual was being introduced into a family show. Um, and you just need to go back and look at the tabloid reaction. Um, so when Julia left, the, the second producer after her, Tony, didn't have the, the same kind of courage. And, and she sometimes had to face down opposition within the BBC. I remember when she called me up to her office um, and said that she'd had a call to lift a couple of scenes from the uh, episode. And this senior BBC executive had made the decision, not based on having seen the episode, but what he'd read in the tabloids that day. And Julia made the call and she said, right, I'm going to, I won't tell you who the executive is, although I recall it vividly. She said, I've got Michael Cashman, who, as you know, plays Colin. She said, I'm now going to put you on speaker. <laughs> now you tell me what you told... No, you now tell him what you told me. And he refused to have the conversation. <laughs> and she said, okay, you can't have that conversation. That balls. She said, then I'm standing by the episode. Marvellous. That's amazing. That's great for a producer to, to support you in, in, in such a great way and not kind of... I mean, nowadays, nowadays, I imagine producers would be like, let's take a step back. Let's play the safe route. Except nowadays, it's, it, it's not an issue because we broke... I don't say me, we, mm. the writers, the creative team, the BBC broke the mould, and thereafter it became easier. Uh, when people came out over Section 28, mm -hmm. interestingly, uh, it became easier because, because we had a face. We were no longer them or those people. And that's why the resistance to Colin and Barry on screen uh, was so firm, because we came over as ordinary, boring. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, the fact that he was boring was brilliant. Yeah. There's a, there's a great clip that I, I, I watch every now and then when um, Barry comes out to Dot oh, in the yeah. laundrette, and it's just a conversation <laughs> over bedsheets. Yeah. It's not a conversation over, well, we like doing this, we like doing that, if you know what I mean. It's, That's right. Well, 
we've only got one set of bed sheets and these two. These two, these two yeah. You're not telling me you and Carlin in the same bed. <laughs> Oh no! Oh no! What about AIDS? Oh, oh! She, she does go, that she big go, thing. She goes homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that was the incredible thing that. Like, it's funny I was talking about this that Colin then spent the next few episodes chasing Dot around the square trying to give her leaflets <laughs> about AIDS, and and she kept holding things up to her mouth. But once she understood and she became his friend. Mm. She stood by him absolutely, and he stood by her. And interestingly, as that gay man in that show, he was the first man to take Nick Cotton by the scruff of the neck and throw him out of the Queen Vic. Wow. Um, and so that relationship, Dot and Colin were kind of the odd couple of EastEnders, and June is still one of my best, best mates. And what's great is Barry was played by Gary, yes. who's a straight guy. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I always said, in fact, we, we met recently, and, and I said, you know, you must have had a really hard time because I could deal with the homophobia, and I could say, yeah, I'm gay, so what? Mm. Whereas if they said to you, look, you're queer, you're poof, and you then start saying no... There's a different kind of dialogue. Whereas yeah. when I come back at them, and he said, no, Michael, he said, my problems was I used to get beaten up by old ladies because I used to treat you so badly on screen. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but that's how we met. Yep. We did that's the, right. You, we did the shoot. Yeah, Gay in, Times reunited you and, and Gary. And we went up into the park. We went to Hampstead Heath, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> <laughs> um, did, you feel, did you feel like a, a responsibility at the time that you were representing not just one gay man on, on a national television show, but you were essentially, for a lot of people, the face of the community. No. You never felt no, that pressure? What, what I knew was that there was, that there was a job of work to be done. Mm. But I did know, because I said earlier, I did know that it would become somehow an issue, which is why... You know, I mean, the hypocrisy of our media that I hadn't even been on screen. Um, I got a call from the press office at EastEnders saying, um, the news of the world have been on. They're offering you 15000 for your life story. And they said, whatever you want it to be. So they were willing Did you me. believe them, though? No, but, they were, but I knew, Robert, what they wanted to do. Build up the myth and then destroy it with with half-truth. Mm. They wanted to, to destroy me or destroy the character. Um, and I, rec I actually recognised early on that it was far too important to allow anyone to, to play around with that. So I, so I suppose at the back of my mind there must have been a sense of responsibility. But uh, what I was more interested in is getting the acting right, getting the scenes right, because that's you, you had about five days to turn around two episodes. Now it's a lot shorter. Yeah. Um, and, and that, in a way, focuses your mind. But that all changed when Section 28 happened, the first time in 100 years uh, that Thatcher's government bring in uh, an anti-lesbian and gay and bisexual law. And that, that is when the dynamic changed. Is that what politicised you? I've been, politi I've, you I've been political before I, I joined the Labour Party when I was 24, so in 1975. Um, and uh, what was it that politicised you then? Then, yeah. um, I think coming from my background, very, you know, I was brought up in a council estate. Uh, 
life was tough. My, my dad was a docker, as I said. When he couldn't get work in the docks, he would get work wherever he could. My mum, my God, you know, I, I said if they had had an education, what they could have achieved, and they didn't. My mum left school when she was 12. My dad left school when he was 12. My mum was an office cleaner. Um, used to go all night office cleaning, come home, get us off to school, sleep, then do early evening office cleaning, um, then all night office cleaning. Uh, sometimes my dad would do it with her. And that kind of, and I think also when you know you're an outsider, you see the world differently. So you joined the Labour Party. Were you, were you involved in their, you know, in, 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 in the movement in, in that respect? Or what was your no, involvement I, in, in Labour Party then? Uh, I joined just as a, a local member here in uh, Tower Hamlets. I think I was in Bowen Poplar uh, constituency. And I just would uh, occasionally go out posting leaflets through doors. I wasn't a very active member, mm. uh, I, but I wanted to be a member of the party. Um, and so then when I became semi-famous with uh, sandbaggers, um, I used to do stuff for the, the, the party kind of nationally or locally. Um, and, uh, and then with EastEnders, uh, of course, I did stuff and went out for them in the 87 election. And, and, the, and there was a lovely broadcast between me uh, and Kenneth Williams, uh, <laughs> where he was on for the Conservatives and I was on for Labour. Um, so, uh, so I was pushing out there then. But Section 28 politicised my entire view of my place in the world. And just, just for listeners who might not know what Section 28 is and the, the effects still being felt today just just give a quick overview of, of what that is okay so if, if i had to on, on the pain of death uh give you a pricey section 28 basically said a local authority shouldn't do anything uh to make people aware about uh homosexuality or supply goods and services to them uh that we couldn't even be accepted as a pretend family relationship that there should be no reference to us in schools uh and when we said Okay, if you cannot promote homosexuality by a local authority, give us a definition. Does that mean a local authority theatre can't have the plays of Joe Orton or, or Genet or, or a recital of the bisexual poems, uh, sonnets of Shakespeare? Does it mean that those books can't be on uh, a public library owned by a local authority? What does it mean? And they wouldn't give that definition because they wanted to censor everyone. Mm. Um, and, and it was it was a, an awful piece of legislation that the chief whip of the Conservative Party then uh, confessed that it was a piece of right a piece of red meat thrown to their right wing wolves and their right wing wolves were also editing national newspapers um, so it was pandering to uh, to prejudice and you know what the only thing I know is that you go into into politics. Not, not to follow public opinion, but to lead it, to have the courage to be unpopular, to do what's right for the long term, and those people did not. They were willing to sacrifice us when AIDS and HIV was threatening our lives and we were seen as a legitimate target. Nobody would give a fuck about the faggots. Mm. Well, the faggots and our straight friends and our lesbian allies fought back, and Section 28 was the catalyst that made the, 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 
the shields dropped from our eyes. We had clubs, we had bars, we had saunas, but did we have equality? Did we fuck? Sorry, peers shouldn't <laughs> swear, but I suppose I am a queer of the realm. <laughs> so, in, in this kind of stormy... I guess, you know, the late 80s is always depicted as being this incredibly... In, in, as someone like me, looking back, I was only, I was only five in 88. Um, so, sort of the way that it's always depicted is it was very, very... Um, sort of troubled, but also very exciting, it seemed. Was it, it, it must have been horrendously scary and frustrating, but was there an excitement? Was there a buzz where you thought we're actually doing something and we're going to make a difference? There wasn't an excitement, there was an adrenaline rush. Okay, maybe that's the word I was which looking is, for which then. Which is very different. Yeah. When you, you know your heart's beating, you know actually that you've got to be out on that demo. Um, you know you've got to raise your hand up and actually challenge that person in public. Um, but, but, you know, people were not only dying, people were being discriminated against in their dying. Um, and I remember going in, people didn't come out as HIV positive to some of their friends. And I remember going into a, a, a ward in a hospital in Fulham and I was doing, you know, they said, we've got a celebrity, unannounced celebrity, and they go and say to people, are you up for a visit? And I walked into a room and there was a friend of mine who was HIV positive being treated in hospital. And I, and I never knew. And most of his friends didn't. And people didn't come out because uh, as HIV positive because of the stigma and the discrimination that they faced. People were driven from their homes. People were sacked, told not to come into bars and cafes. Um, and, and a generation was dying. Uh, and thankfully in this country, people came together and organized in an amazing way uh, to get hospices, to create our own services, uh, elements of, the, uh, of religious organizations showed what real, true compassion should be about, um, uh, and Norman Fowler, who's now in the Lords and who I love working with, as health minister, had the courage to challenge uh, Thatcher and his cabinet colleagues to say, we need to do this amazing awareness-raising campaign about AIDS, that you can't catch it, as mm. people say you can. You, uh, and, uh, and they tried to undermine Norman Fowler every step of the way. He talks about it now, and he's written a, a wonderful book about it. But, but the fact that they introduced something as dark as Section 28 into that dark time, in a way was, uh, was a brick too far on the camel's back. Um, and we, uh, we took up the challenge. But I can't forget the, uh, the absolute pain and suffering that uh, people and the media who should have known better caused willfully, not in ignorance, but caused willfully. So what did you do? What was the, what was the plan? How did you, well, the how, how, did you how did you go from, from, from being in EastEnders to, to the next step? Well, you, what you mean in, in, in terms as, of... As in, 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 obviously, I mean, it, it's well known you are a co-founder of the human rights charity Stonewall. So how did you go from being, uh, you know, bloke down the square, <laughs> Albert <laughs> Square, to being uh, setting up 
Stonewall? Well, I, I, I'd come out in, in support of um, the AIDS and HIV crisis, uh, along with amazing people like Pam St. Clement uh, and so many others in the media world, uh, the arts world. Um, and so when S Section 28 happened, I, I read about it in one of the free weekly gay newspapers called Gap Capital Gay, and it said that there was going to be a march, and I just knew I had to be on that march. Um, and then they kind of somebody said, "Oh no, you've got to be out the front. You've got to be out the front. Get up the front." <laughs> and, and there I was. And my dad evidently said to my mum when it was on the lead story on BBC News, six o'clock news that Saturday evening, he went, "He said I don't mind him being gay, but does he have to go on the bleeding news about it?" <laughs> um, and and that was it, Robert. You know, you don't plan a journey; you decide to take a step forward. Mm. And then you decide that you have to take another step, and 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 the, and the movement forward doesn't happen by itself. It's not that you gather a momentum; it's just that you have to decide each step of the way: will I go further? When you when you were on that march and when you were setting up Stonewall, were you still in EastEnders at the time? Yes, you were. And there was uh, an actress, really good friend, not June Brown. I hasten to add, June was brilliant. Uh, June was with me all, all the way, even though she would describe herself as a one-nation uh, conservative. Um, but somebody came up to me and said, uh, Michael, I think you've done enough. Think about your career. And I turned around and I said, if I have to think about my career and not do what I believe in, then it's not, it's not a career worth having. Um, and, and Stonewall came about um, because we lost the battle against... Section 28, I remember we had a conversation uh, just along from me here at Ian's where we said, right, we've got to make sure another Section 28 never happens again. Ian McKellen. Yeah, Ian yeah. McKellen. There's only one Ian in my <laughs> life. Um, <laughs> as there's only one Paul. Uh, <laughs> even though he died uh, 20 months ago, you never lose 31 years of mm. love. It sustains you for the rest of your life. Um, and we had this conversation, and then we pulled in different people, talked to them about the idea. A lot of people said, I'll give you a check, but I don't want to get involved. <laughs> um, and so with private money and singular determination and facing a lot of criticism from within the gay media, uh, we set up Stonewall. Why was there criticism from the gay media? Because a lot of people didn't like territory being taken away from them. Uh, they accused us of being a self-serving elite and I said absolutely okay. right I said I'm trying to get equality if other people want to actually uh, choose to take uh, uh, equal rights great um, others said you know you're not a grassroots organization who's your membership and we said we don't want to be a grassroots organization because every organization had been torn apart by the internal uh, wings uh, of 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 the, the the membership organizations we wanted to serve the organization so it could deal with the external threat to us the external criticism and then uh, Derek Jarman severely criticized uh, Ian McKellen and me Ian because he took the knighthood I advised Ian to take the knighthood from the conservative government because people should remember it's not given to you by the government the recommendation comes from the government to the Queen um, and I said to Ian, take it. I said, if Labour gave it to you, I said, they would say, oh, of course Labour would give it to him because he's done all this about gay rights. Mm. I said, but the fact that the Tories have given it to you, 
I said, means you can campaign in areas where the establishment wouldn't want you. Um, and Jarman attacked him and attacked us. Um, and interestingly, in the defense of Ian, I managed to out Cameron McIntosh on the front page of <laughs> The Guardian because he signed a letter in defense of Ian without properly reading it. So, you know, um, and we faced the criticism. And interestingly enough, there was one journalist who I won't name, but went on to become uh, a, 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 an executive of Stonewall who spent a great deal of time attacking Stonewall during its infancy about our legitimacy and who did we represent. Week after week in uh, the pink paper, as it then was, uh, there, there, was a, uh, there would be an attack of some sort on Stonewall. And I think the fact that it was set up largely by people coming from the arts who had spent a lifetime of dealing with bad criticisms and having to get on and do the performance anyway, I think that was why we faced it down. And again, we came in for a barrage of criticism when we appointed Angela Mason um, uh, because uh, of uh, her, her left-wing past. But we faced it down. And as chair, I had absolutely no hesitation in taking on board that responsibility because I, we weren't setting up Stonewall to be liked. We were setting up Stonewall to get a job done, to convince politicians that they had to take on board the issues of equality. So you set up a charity, you set up Stonewall. It wasn't a, chari charity, wasn't a charity then. Because, because seeking political change, you couldn't. So we set up Stonewall as a campaigning organisation and the associated charity was called the Iris Trust, okay. the, uh, which... Uh, the, the, the initials stand for TIT, the Iris <laughs> Trust. So we had Iris on one side and TIT, we had Stonewall on one side and TIT on the other. And that allowed people to funnel, uh, if they didn't want to be seen giving money to Stonewall, which then wasn't known as a gay organisation, mm. um, they could give it to the Iris Trust and, uh, and under the conditions of the uh, charity commissioners, certain amounts of that money could be used for research, that kind of stuff. So... The day-to-day the -day running of, of Stonewall in the time was left in the hands of... Yeah, Tim of, Barnett okay. was our first chief executive. We had a staff of one in, in a, a cupboard. It um, <laughs> started off in Peter Ashman's house, who sadly is no longer with us. Uh, he was in Rectory Road in Islington, and we had uh, kind of a tiny bedroom. Then we moved to uh, Victoria, where, again, we had a tiny space. Tim was the first executive director... Uh, we did uh, a one-off performance, gala performance of Bent and raised, because of Cameron McIntosh's generosity, I think about £38,000, and that was a long time ago. And that enabled us to hire staff, get the offices. And then gradually, we took on another member of staff, and, uh, and then Angela came in, and Tim and Angela gave it amazing strength, purpose, and direction. I think if it wasn't for them... You know, I, I was chair, I think, for about six years. We had a great board. It was the first, uh, not the first time, but it was the first time it was effective that we had gender parity on the board and mm. the organisation. That was extremely important. Um, but they were the driving force, uh, Tim Barnett and Angela Mason. You were only on the, on the board for six years? Yeah, I remained as a member uh, for, uh, a member of Stonewall, uh, still am, uh, a member of the board for a number of years. But I decided... Uh, because I was there in the, the 18 months that we took to found the organisation, to announce it publicly, then six years as chair, and I knew I was facing burnout. And also I knew 
that Sunday afternoon where I decided that I would resign, I said, there's going to be uh, something, I w a subject I want to put down under any other business uh, as I opened the board meeting. And I'd made my mind up that I would resign. And then as the board meeting went on, the other voice in my head kept saying, but you can't resign. There's no one to take over from you. And that was when I knew I had to go, that I was dangerous to the organization because, because if knowing when to start is important, knowing when to let go is even more important. What would have been bad if you had stayed? Well, because maybe I would have, I would have stood in the way of the organization changing okay. in, in the way it was working. And it was going to grow and grow beyond me. And, and a lot of founders don't like that. They get threatened by it. And thankfully, I recognized that and had the courage to let go. And Stonewall has grown beyond my wildest, happiest dreams. Did, did the, have, have all the original 20, there were 20 board members, weren't there? Yeah. Have they all, have, they've all moved on. Yes, all, all of us have moved on. So that's great. You, you make something and it, it lives on beyond you. Yeah. Yeah, let go. You have to, you know, um, you have to be a good, a good lover or a good parent. If you, I've always said if you really love someone, you have to let them go if they want to. Yeah. And Stonewall wanted to get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> um, in that six years, what, what are the most, you know, what are the proudest things that you, you contributed to, to Stonewall? and to essentially what the work the Stonewall was doing? I think the, um, the ver working with uh, rank outsiders uh, who were a group of women and men who'd been uh, discharged from the armed services because uh, they were lesbian, gay or bisexual, working with them uh, to give evidence to the Armed Forces Select Committee for, the de for, the, for ending the ban, um, working to to, although it wasn't resolved during my time as chair, to uh, bring about an equal age consent in places like the Isle of Man and an equal age consent here in the United Kingdom. We didn't get it in uh, 1994 at the first attempt. It went from 21 to 18. Um, but I think I'm proudest uh, of, of being able to create a working environment for someone like Tim Barnett and for the amazing and hugely underrated Angela Mason. Angela and I worked, as, as I did with Tim, but Angela and I had a very special relationship, and I recognized the brilliance of her mind uh, and her Rottweiler attitude in getting things done. I love that. So after Stonewall, were you, were you, still, were you still acting at, at the time during, in that six years? Yep, absolutely. Where did you go after EastEnders? Um, after EastEnders, I, I did... Bent with Ian McKellen as a one-off, and then we went. Uh, we were asked to do that at the Royal National Theatre, and then went into the West End with that. Um, but in those days, you couldn't like you can now. You can't jump from one soap to another. Your career, virtually in television, was over. Yeah, because you were associated with one brand. Um, so I had to go off and kind of remake my career in the theatre as a uh, as a serious actor uh, playing. Uh, in Dr. Faustus um, and uh, playing Mephistopheles, uh, uh, doing a wonderfully outrageous performance as uh, in Sherlock Holmes playing Inspector Lestrade. And I didn't play him as this posh uh, upper-class copper. I played him as this old cockney who really mm. hated uh, Holmes. Uh, and, and I kind of recreated myself through theatre, yeah. 
So how do you go from, from being you know, a jobbing actor again to a member of the European Parliament? Well, again, um, that happened almost by accident. I was at home sanding the floor <laughs> and because um, my brother, Johnny, the, he's a builder, had got me a lot of um, uh, a parquet floor that he pulled out of a Chinese restaurant that he was renovating. And um, so there I was, I'd laid the parquet floor and I was sanding it and the phone rang and it was my good friend, Margaret McDonough, who was regional organiser for London Labour Party. <clears throat> and she said, look, um, the, the ballot's just gone against the sitting member. Um, we think you'd make a brilliant candidate. I went, I said, Margaret, I'm sanding the floor. I'll ring you back. <laughs> and I thought, and again, Robert, it's, it, it's about your upbringing. I thought, no, no. I didn't go to university. I didn't have a proper education. It's other people that go into politics. And then I thought about it, and Paul, always the sensible voice in my life, said, of course you can do it. You know you love European politics because I'd come across it through Stonewall in the early days. And, um, and so I said yes, fought the campaign, came a close second for the nomination to the sitting MEP, um, and then went on and carried on with my acting. And because I've been in EastEnders, there were always parts that were on offer in, mm. in commercial theatre. And then when it came to 1998, the Labour government had been elected. I'd taken a great, uh, a big role in the election campaign. And, uh, and then they asked me to run for the National Executive Committee, the controlling body of the Labour Party. And to my amazement, I got elected. Um, <laughs> And uh, by a, with a considerable margin. And, and then the same year, um, the nominations for the European Parliament were coming up and, uh, and I was ready, I suppose. I was ready. And I went off and I had a, an amazing 50, 15 years there doing incredible things. You know, like Schengen, you know, the free movement area. I wrote that into law for the European Union. I wrote the biggest single Freedom of Information Act for the European Union. Uh, uh, European visas um, and in the Schengen area, uh, the biggest, rewrote the biggest action program to combat discrimination on the grounds of race, ethnicity, religion, belief, age, disability. Was a part of Romania's accession, Bulgaria's accession challenged the homophobia coming from EU countries and from African, Caribbean and Pacific countries. Um, yeah, I had an amazing time. I've got nothing but affection uh, for my time there. And you were okay leaving the acting behind? Some people said that when they saw me in the chamber that I'd never left the acting behind. <laughs> no, I, 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 Faye Weldon, I, I appeared in the world premiere of uh, uh, one of her books that had been turned, in, turned into a play called The Four Alice Bakers. And we premiered it uh, at Birmingham Rep and they wanted to take it into the West End and I said, Faye, I can't, I'm going into European politics. And she looked at me, she, went, I, she said, even if I'd written this in a book, people wouldn't believe it. <laughs> um, and, I, and I didn't, Robert, because I think you, a bit like an apple on a tree, you come of your time, you develop according to the amount of nourishment you've had, the experience you've had. Um, and I plopped like that apple into the softest meadow and I rolled with it. And, um, uh, and the acting skills, the communication skills that you learn as an actor, 
or you acquire through developing your talent because you can't learn to act um, uh, come in extremely uh, valuable, especially when you speak from the heart um, instead of the head. Mm. And throughout all of this, Paul was with you. Yeah. We met in 1983. Barbara Windsor introduced us. We were both in Scarborough. He was a Butlin's red coat. Um, <laughs> and I was having one of my plays produced by uh, Alan Akebourne, and I was in his company. And um, when I met Paul, we, uh, I invited him back that night after Barbara's big party. I said, do you want to come back for a cup of tea? Mm-hmm. And he joked. He said, I never got the tea. Um, and I, I, I didn't believe he loved me. Ever? I know, of course I did later, but I used to say to him, no, no, you, 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 don't, you, you don't love me. He was 19. I was 33. Okay. Um, and we went out one Sunday lunch and his line manager in Butlin sat me down and she said, right, you won't believe him, so you better believe me. He loves you. You know, he used to be straight. You know, he used to go out with women. He's only had two... You know, I'm, b- I'm being really candid now. He's only had two uh, gay experiences and he loves you. And, um, and I said to him shortly before he died, um, the day we were actually told by his... Uh, oncologist when she came in and she said now Paul I always told you I know you don't want doom and gloom I always told you um, that when I can do no more I will tell you and she said I can do no more but we'll be here for you and when she left we had a he and I had a chat and I said to him I said you do know I love you and he said I do now and the other most amazing thing he said to me he said, well, now we know about the, about the diagnosis. And he said, and I'm ready. I'm ready. And about 16 hours later, he died. And, um, and I was there for his last breath. And I saw it. Uh, and I just said to him, go. Just go. Um, and that 31 years that we had together has made me the man I am and, and it will shape the rest of my life so long as I have it. Um, but in those early years, I, I didn't believe him. He used to say, I love you. I used to say, you know, it's not a question. <laughs> um, yeah, and he, 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 you know, he, was, he became an actor. He had a great singing voice. The, the, the Barry Manilow fan club used to say if you can't hear Barry then try and hear Paul Cottingham <laughs> singing Mandy and of course at, at his celebration of his life his cremation um, we of course sang Mandy in public and somebody said it's only Paul Cottingham that could have got um, uh, Ed Miliband uh, half the cast of EastEnders Paul O'Grady, Ian McKellen uh, and Tony Blair and Cherie Blair to sing Mandy in public <laughs> <laughs> Um, how how did you how did you kind of get to a place where it's moved on the the, the right term? Do you, do you feel you've you've moved on, or do you just feel you've how how do you define where you are now in relation to in relation to, you mentioned before twenty months since since Paul died? So what's what's that process like? Um, I, I've I've. I've written a, a book uh, um, about my life up until meeting Paul and then up until when he died. Um, whether we get a publisher or not doesn't matter. 
Um, but with grief, you you never move on. You you do a kind of dance, um, uh, and you're dancing on one side of the floor, and you s and you see that all the colours around you are, are, are amazingly bright, and then you turn around, and before you know it, you're on the dark side of the dance floor, where there's nobody else. Um, in the early days, the early months, all you do is recount the last few minutes uh, of Paul's life. Um, and then you recall the laughs, and my God, we had some laughs. You know, and we had an open relationship, and we... we we, our relationship stood the test of time. It wasn't. It wasn't love that was, you know, wrapped up in uh, red ribbons and, and and cotton wool. It took the bashes and the knocks, uh, and the challenge, the sexual challenges of uh, uh, of growing up in somewhere like London. Um, him being extremely attractive, and me having a de degree of attraction as old newts like me do, <laughs> oh um, <my> and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then I think 20 months on, I, I begin to see the whole journey. And then suddenly when I'm, I'm happy, I, I question why, why I should be. Um, but it's, it's recognizing really that um, I'm not religious, but I do believe that in the first principle, I think it's a physics, that energy can be neither created nor destroyed. It shifts from one form to another. As a dog can hear sounds from energy that we can't. So I believe that the energy waves that we create by our lives, and my God, he lived. Died at the age of 50 and crammed more into 50 years than some people could cram into a 150. That the energy of that life goes on. Uh, and as I breathe with his memory, so he too uh, will breathe. Um, and that's what matters. That's what gets you through the day. That's why the House of Lords is brilliant. Paul died four days before I went in. Um, and I think of him when I'm nervous, when I stand up and speak, because if you care about things, you do get nervous. I think of him and what he'd say. Um, and um, But that's the other thing about you don't lose somebody. I, I hate that term, loss. Um, you don't lose love. What you lose is the reciprocity uh, of emotions. And so when I have a bad experience, I, I want to tell him about it. But more importantly, when I have a brilliant experience, I want him to share it. And I know he would love the House of Lords. He'd love it. Um, but I don't have the gift or the curse of religion. I can't believe that in some form I will meet him again and therefore I have to recall and cherish um, everything I had. Mike, what goes on in the House of Lords? <laughs> you know what? It's one of the most amazing, I never thought I'd say this, one of the most amazing, warm and welcoming places I've ever worked. It's like the, the European Parliament. No one party has an overall majority mm -hmm. so people work cross-party people listen to the arguments uh, I stand up and I, I will be in debate and I will hear the most amazing contributions from people who were at the top of their game and keep themselves informed so they still are they may not be practicing judges they may not be practicing uh, 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 oncologists 
practicing politicians, etc. But they keep themselves informed, and therefore the debates are less tribal, they're more informed, and the Lords is there to ask the government to think again. And I remember, you know, one of the things I'm really proud of is that when the government brought forward a very dubious piece of legislation, I won't get technical now, that most, MP, most peers questioned in order to bring about four billions of cuts for the poorest in relation to tax credits, the House of Lords was threatened, if you do that, we will take away your privileges. And you know what? The House of Lords decided that if we had privileges, how could there be a better way than to surrender them by defending those who had no privilege? And we defied the government, and the government had to think again, and the Chancellor stood up, stood up and said, oh yes, it was wrong to bring forward four billion uh, of uh, cuts in tax credits. The attacks are still on the House of Lords, um, but it's a revising chamber. We get hold of legislation, we try to improve it, we ask the government to think again, um, but it's a really, it, there's none of that shouting one another down. And in fact, if you do it, if you try to score party political points, it's seen as being rather cheap. But uh, I, do, I will tell you this. You have to learn the protocols. So if you're uh, an ex-admiral, admiral, I have to say the, the noble and gallant lord, mm. uh, QC, judge, etc., the noble and learned. How do they describe you? Uh, well, you become the noble. Okay. Right. So it's either uh, Lord, Lord Cashman, and, um, but, but they have a, a wonderful intonation of using noble to feel that you are noble or that you are absolutely the opposite. Right. So, so if, they say, if they really mean it, they say, I refer to the noble Lord, Lord Cashman's uh, intervention. And if they don't uh, want you to feel noble, they go, I refer to the noble <laughs> Lord Cashman's intervention. Um, but there was a wonderful debate we had on uh, development aid uh, and uh, there was one uh, ex-government uh, Thatcher minister who was trying to talk it out. And I was tweeting in the chamber, and I tweeted that he was using weasel words uh, to talk out a bill uh, that would give the poorest of the world what they needed. And about an hour later, he stood up and he went, my lords, my lords, I have to tell your lordships that the, the noble Lord Cashman has <laughs> tweeted, and then he read my unparliamentary language into Hansard. I think the first time a tweet has been read into Hansard. And then he said, he said, now I have to say to the noble Lord, it is completely uh, unbecoming of him. And I just looked at him and shrugged. But I saw, <laughs> I saw some of the peers around him going, tweet, tweet. What's a, what's a tweet? And then Nigel Lawson stood up and he said, well, um, I, 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 I think that they, the noble lord, what, what's his name? Oh, Cashman. Um, we, he should untweet it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did, I did point out to someone, I said, you know, I have to tell you, a tweet is not something that Nanny gives you if you've mm. been a good boy. But, but seriously, it's a... It's a wonderful place to work, and we work with amazing people like the doorkeepers who look after our security, remind us of the protocols, the staff that support us, the attendants. Um, and, and when you go into work, you say, good morning, how are you? And they go, I'm very well, uh, how are you? And you, it's a great place to work. Just very quickly before we kind of 
bring it bring it to a close yes. before the uh, before that curtain comes down and you have to come do your curtain call. Um, what are your opinions on on the current state of of the pride movement? So, in this country, and obviously, I imagine as part of your job as the the um, LGBT LGBT um, uh, global envoy without a credit card. There we go. Um, you obviously go to many prides across the globe. What's what's the major differences between pride in this country, where you know we've got to we've got to a good healthy place and we shouldn't i know we shouldn't be complacent about that but we are in a, in a mm. healthier place yeah. nowadays than we were 30 or so years ago what's what's the main differences you see between pride in this country and pride in countries where they're at where we were let's say 30 40 years ago well, robert two short answers to that question it's about the prides in this country as well you know i went to oxford pride and the smaller prides have amazing impacts in their communities, in their areas. The pride in London is, has become a party, it's become an international event, and that's great. And also, it empowers, like in the, 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 the two brilliant twins who, it's terrible, I've forgotten their names, but down in the West Country, they, I think it's Yeovil, but it's not Yeovil pride, but those smaller prides have amazing impacts because there are still pockets and large pockets of resistance. Uh, and the, so there is a difference there in that they are political without being party political. They're reminding people of the necessity for change and that in those villages and those areas, there are lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans uh, people. When I go to the pride marches or the, when I used to go to the pride marches like in Romania, uh, Bulgaria, uh, Lithuania um, and even Warsaw, which was, you know, pretty tough. Um, there they're marching for their rights. They're marching for the right to be visible. They're marching for freedom of expression, freedom of association. Um, and people think the, the EU can do everything. The EU does, does amazing things on LGBT rights uh, because a country can't come in if it's criminalizing people for being LGBTI. They have to change those laws. Um, but then, uh, and then, then you have to bring in the other EU laws around non-discrimination in the workplace. But stuff like marriage, civil partnerships, that's the sole domain of those governments in those countries. So, so, so the coming into the EU, we bring about changes in these countries, but there is still a big cultural resistance. And and I remember the first time I went on uh, Pride in uh, in it was Bucharest. Um, where local people, and there weren't that many of them, the 200 or so on that march, might have been a bit more, uh, on that march were primarily uh, foreigners and, and working in the high commissions and the embassies who were there to support the concept, the principle, around the people who'd, who'd organised it. And the small number of locals, most of them wore masks so they wouldn't be recognised. And I went back the following year and what was wonderful, I met this 18-year-old girl who was on the march with her mother and father. Um, and they had a sign in Romanian that said, our daughter is gay and we're proud of her. Uh, and she told me that the previous year she had been on the street watching it. And, and because of the, the, uh, the threats and the attacks that she knew 
this year, that particular year that she had to be on it. So it's more about fighting for rights and fighting for visibility, fighting for acceptance within the communities. What was your first, what was your first Pride back in the day? Um, I think it was about 1978. In London? In London. About, about 400 of us were marching down Oxford Street and we used to end up at the University, uh, uh, University College London's uh, Union. Um, it was so that we'd party there on about three floors. Um, and we used to mark, march along Oxford Street with all these police around us saying, two, four, six, eight, is that copper really straight? <laughs> and the other thing we used to shout out was, we're here, we're queer, and we're not going shopping. <laughs> Although as soon as we passed John Lewis, quite a few of them used to peel off and go in there. Um, and then as the Pride marches grew, we, we got so that we ended up at, um, uh, at the South Bank, at Jubilee Park, I think it was then called. And then it developed over the years. But actually with... When Section 28 happened, the numbers swelled because people also the brilliant thing that Section 28 did was it pulled on board our straight allies. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think the gay movement grew from that, the LGBT movement, latterly the T, but certainly the LGB movement grew from the catalyst uh, and the pride numbers grew because of the catalyst of that uh, anti-LGB law. And you're going to London Pride this year? I am. Um, uh, last year I, I marched with LGBT Labour. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the dynamics of, 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 of Pride, uh, it's not a criticism, but the politicians who affect the change uh, in laws, uh, we, have to, we have to wait and march uh, at the back as the very last. Maybe that's good. Anyway, um, but this year, I'm probably going to march with the Prepsters. Um, and I'm encouraging a lot more... Is that what they're called, the Prepsters? Yes. Um, <laughs> because I... Th uh, because just, just give a, a quick sort of hint as to... Because some listeners might not know what PrEP is. Okay. Um, uh, PrEP is a, a drug that is considered to be... No, is known to be uh, effective in the prevention of the contraction uh, of the HIV uh, virus. Uh, and, but it needs to be taken in advance of exposure to anyone with the HIV virus. It's called pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, and the government through NHS England has decided it will not fund it. it, it I believe it's creating a two-tier health service. You can buy it if you've got the money. If you don't, uh, then tough luck. Um, and uh, there's, there, there's been arguments about, you know, it should be the local authorities that commission and pay for it. The local authorities can't because their budgets are under uh, attack. And so, therefore, the responsibility of the health of the nation falls with the Secretary of State, uh, the Department of Health, and with the government. Um, and sooner or later, they will supply it because it makes absolute sense in economic terms if more people become HIV positive, treating them with the antiretrovirals and all the other necessary uh, 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 medication, over the lifetime becomes much, much more expensive. It, so the economic arguments are there, but would they do this to any other community that, whose lives were under threat? I don't think they would. And that's why I, I believe a new front has opened up in the battle for equality. <laughs> equality to access to health care. Do they see it as... as and I'm talking about the government here, do they see it as 
yet another LGBT issue, or are, are they when they when they talk about prep, are they including the non LGBT people who either have it or potentially could could I, get HIV AIDS? I think they see it as a niche issue. It doesn't affect uh, the majority uh, of the population, but arguably, uh, morally, uh, the health of anyone in our society that could actually benefit from treatment does affect the majority. What is done to a minority is done in the name of the majority. Um, And I think there's a kind of, well... We don't really need to do it now. And, and the government is cutting back on health care provi- provisions. But what I find most distasteful of all is that if you can pay for it, you can get it. Um, and, and they argue about behavioral changes. Well, every advance in medicine, especially in, in relation to sexual activity, has always brought about behavioral changes so with access to health care what people get when they go on prep is they get monitoring they get evaluation they get information and they get education mm. so so it becomes an ongoing process it's not something where you go off take the medication and you never go back and see a practitioner and one of our biggest problems in relation to aids and hiv and there is a new epidemic amongst young men who have sex with men is that we're not getting to people who are HIV positive and then they go on to sleep with other people and so the virus is spreading uh, as it isn't spreading in other parts of the population. And that is why the government needs to act and it needs to act swiftly. Is PrEP available in, in other countries? Has it proven successful yes, elsewhere? It's been proven certainly successful uh, uh, the, the obvious one is in the in in the the USA, um, and there are very uh, very few arguments uh, about uh, its uh, uh, its success uh, or not. Um, there is a reluctance to pay for it. It's as simple as that. And um, we pay. You know, somebody seems to believe at the heart of government that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans people uh, and other people who uh, may come into contact with, uh, with uh, the HIV virus don't pay taxes. Well, I've got news for them. <laughs> we fund the very service um, that we call upon to deal with our healthcare needs. Healthcare for LGBT people is scandalously poor. Um, and, um, and so we've got to address that inequality. Is that is that coming under your job with the Labour Party? Is that is that one of the areas that you're you're concentrating Listen, I, on? I'm I'm bullshit enough to uh, to just wrap it up and put <laughs> and put it in my mouth when I get get the opportunity in the House of Lords to speak about it. Um, of course it of course it does. I don't have the uh, I'm not the party spokesperson in the Lords on Health, mm. uh, but this would affect, amongst others, as you rightly inferred, it affects heterosexual people as well, but it does affect members of the LGBT uh, community. Um, and, um, but equally, everything does. You know, people can't put us into boxes. It's my argument about the European Union, that I want to address not only the benefits that LGBT people have got from being in the EU and, re- and remaining in the EU, it's what they've got as consumers, uh, as travellers, 
uh, as people who use their mobile phones, people who care about the environment, about climate change, uh, about sustainable farming, uh, about the treatment of others. You know, people forget that one of the arguments about equality is that we want to be judged holistically for the person we are rather than judged and stereotyped by one part of us. So just before we end, as we always end, we always end on the quiz, you see. What's next for Lord Michael Cashman, CBE? <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. And do you prefer it that way? After the d death of Paul, I, I, there is no certainty in my life uh, anymore. Um, I'm about to embark upon a project at the end of this month that will... I think maybe shock uh, a few people. I can't give any uh, any details because it is secret. Um, but uh, I know I've, I've got to have the, the courage to perhaps go on sometimes making myself unpopular um, and looking around the room and thinking, oh, is it me that's got to say it again? But Robert, I've had the most amazing life. Amazing. It sounds it. <laughs> most amazing family amazing lovers, uh, the most amazing love of my life um, and opportunities that have come my way that shouldn't have. And that's why I'm always waiting for that person to tap me on the shoulder and say, can we have it all back, please? We, we meant the other <laughs> Michael Cashman. Um, okay, so we always end on the quiz. Okay. It's about lords. Okay. So, um, question one. Which lord has five injured bones in his spine? No idea. Michael Flatley, Lord of the Dance. Oh. Yeah. Is he ever around the House of Lords? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think if he was, we'd have to show him the door. <laughs> um, which lord was a professional gambler and he was rated um, in the top ten backgammon players in the world? No idea. Lord Lucan. Oh! Is he ever in the House of Lords? Well, uh, I think his son might stand for election. Oh, would he would he have an Hereditary, yeah. Oh, so now he's got that would only happen just recently, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. But he can only stand for election if one of the hereditary peers resigns or, or dies. Because there could only be so many hereditary yeah, I think it's peers. Ni 99. Okay. Hmm. Um, Shmi, Owen, and Ben are all relations of which lord? Shui. Shmi. Shmi. S-H-M-I. So Shmi, Owen, and Ben are all relations of which lord? No idea. Lord Vader. No. Dark Lord of the Sith. <laughs> <laughs> is, he, is he never around the oh earth? You never see him? No, you never see him. Um, which lord was an influence on Charlotte Bronte? No idea. Lord Byron. And you never see him around the House of Lords because no. he's too busy making burgers. Which lord <laughs> criticised McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Visa and others for their sponsorship of the 2014 Winter Olympics? I guess Lord Ali. No, it was you. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't a lord then. <laughs> um, no, I was an MEP. <laughs> I remember I stood up in the chamber and cut up my credit card and said, not in my name. Oh, wow. Yeah. Had you paid your bill though? No. I think then legally you don't have to pay the bill. Very good. <laughs> um, Michael, I can't thank you enough. This has been wonderful. No, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Um, 
This is how we always end the podcast. First of all, I say, if you want to go see the photos of Michael, go to www.sftl.photos. Um, and lovely plane going over. Yeah, that's my taxi. <laughs> <laughs> they fly you in straight to the House of Lords. Yeah, that's right. Um, this is how we end it. I've been Robert Gershenson. And I've been, and I hope to remain, Michael Cashman. We'll shoot you later. Yeah.